Father God, we, Lord, thank you that we can come before you today and, Father, worship you, Lord, in spirit and in truth. God, I thank you for today, Lord. We're all across the globe, Father. Your people are, are, are God intentionally focusing on the cross and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the gospel that that accomplished. Lord, I pray for each person that is in this room this morning. I pray for each person that might hear this, Father, uh, Lord, in some other means down the road. I, I just pray, God, that our hearts are filled with awe over you. I pray, Father, that, Lord, um, God, if there is anyone among us that is not born of your Spirit, that, God, today would be the day that your grace, Lord, transforms their lives. Father, I pray that you speak for me today. I pray, Lord, that you would give me utterance according to your Spirit and bound by your word, Lord, it is in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen and amen. Well, this morning, we're going to see the death of Jesus Christ through the eyes of Matthew. Now, that excites me in a special way to go to Matthew's gospel this morning to chew on this passage that we're going to look at this morning. Uh, because in Matthew's Gospel, we're going to a, a section of Scripture that though I have referred to verse after verse in Matthew's account, I have never actually sat down and preached through these specific verses, verses 45 through 54. Now that, that excites me. Now, like I said, I've referenced it. I've preached the cross and the death and the resurrection from Mark and from Luke and from John. But I've never set up right here in Matthew. Now guys, never. 22 years of pastoring churches, 32 years of preaching. Remember, I was a teenager when I started, okay? I've never actually just set up shop right here and so I am excited now you would say some of you would say well now brother if you've preached from Luke and you've preached it from John and you've preached it from Mark what's the difference well I don't know if you've ever noticed it or not but when you read the gospel narrative accounts of the cross of Christ and the death of Christ and the resurrection there there's differences they're different not that they're in disagreement, but that you have each of the narratives presenting the gospel account from the perspective of different disciples. And God takes those different perspectives and paints for us the whole picture of the revelation of the one simultaneous event that He wants us to see. 
And so I'm excited, okay, to just be right here in Matthew's gospel today. And so if you would, take your copy of the Word of God, open it with me to the gospel of Matthew, and we're going to take for a text this morning, Matthew chapter 27, verse 45, down through verse 54. Matthew chapter 27, verse 45 through 54. And I would hang as a title over this text this morning, Clouds, Cries, and a Torn Curtain. Let's look and see what the Lord has to say to us this morning. Let's read beginning in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, Wait. Let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice again and yielded up his spirit. And behold, (laughs) the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened and Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his, that is Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly or surely this was the Son of God. Wow. Wow. Let's walk through this text. Let's hear what the Holy Spirit is communicating through the gospel narrative of Matthew this morning. And when we open up and we read first here in verse 45, we see, those of you who like to take notes, here's your point number one, all right? Dark clouds move in. You see, the text says in verse 45, from the sixth hour. Now, the sixth hour, that is because Matthew is coming from a a Jewish time scale. That is about 12 p.m., 12 noon to the ninth hour, which would be about 3 p.m. or 3 in the afternoon. The text says there was darkness over all the land. Darkness. I mean, this wasn't some little gray cloud that blew in. This wasn't some meteorological phenomenon. This was not a Cape McKenna Way 31 severe thunderstorm warning event. These were storm clouds of the darkest nature whose origin was from the throne room of heaven. This was a darkness over Golgotha that was both a divine announcement and a spiritual event that is so great we cannot even begin to imagine it. 
This was an awesome thing because as this darkness enveloped Golgotha and the surrounding area of Israel, as this was happening, the glorious gospel that saves those that believe was being accomplished in these hours on the cross. Oh my goodness, what was happening that day. So, what does this darkness tell us? about what was happening. Well, I would suggest to you that it is multifactorial and there's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of things going on in the heavenlies that day that you and I are not given privy to. But what I will tell you, two things that I do know, what I can see from the revelation of Scripture is that I know there were at least two things that were going on as the darkness enveloped that area. You see... Darkness, on one hand, announced the judgment of God. Darkness announced the judgment of God. You can see this throughout the scriptures concerning great darkness, great darkness coming before great judgment and wrath. You can go back, for example, to Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 through 23. And there was a great darkness that fell on Egypt as a sign of the judgment of God. We're told in the the gospel accounts, specifically in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we're told in uh, in some of the narratives there that before the great and final judgment, that there will be darkness that will eclipse the sun. But darkness would come. The ultimate example in in reality of God's judgment and God's unbridled wrath is seen in the place of hell. And hell is connected and illustrated by darkness. Several places in Scripture. You can read, for example, in Matthew 22 and verse 13, and in Matthew 25 and verse 30, hell is referred to as the place of outer darkness. You can go to 2 Peter chapter number 2 and verse 17, and we read that it is a gloomy place of utter darkness. But here at Calvary's cross, here on a hill called Golgotha, Here where the sinless, spotless Lamb of God was suffering, the judgment of God fell. Do you hear me? The judgment of God fell. Judgment on the sins that the Savior never committed. He was an innocent man. Judgment that was satisfying the legal demands of the law of God. And it was satisfying it in the eternal court of justice. On that day when darkness enveloped the cross. On that day personal sin was being judged. And the cup of God's wrath was being poured out upon an absolutely innocent man. Christ Jesus. That's one of the things that was happening. And so darkness announced the judgment of God. And simultaneously, 
it announced the presence of sin on Calvary's cross. Wow, that is amazing. You see, darkness in Scripture is also symbolic of moral failure, sin, spiritual corruption. You see this throughout the Scriptures. Let me offer you some sampling so you know I'm not just making this up. If you go, for example, to Romans 1 and verse 21, we read these words, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and they were foolish. Their foolish heart was darkened. Romans 1 if you read the entire chapter, captures the total depravity of man, our utter sinfulness and corruption as we were locked in and bound by the sin nature and the deeds of that nature and the way of that nature and the heart of those who are characterized by that nature were said to have been darkened. You can read over in John's Gospel, John chapter 3, right after the famous 316. You can read in verse 19 and 20 these words. This is the judgment that light has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into the light for fear that their deeds are exposed. Do you hear that? Men's evil deeds are compared to men that love darkness. Darkness. In Romans 13, in verse 12, we read these words from the Apostle Paul. He says, The night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness. The deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now what are the deeds of darkness? Well, if you read on Downing, the context of that, he mentions, gives a sampling of deeds of darkness. He mentions them as orgies and drunkenness and sexual immorality and jealousy and quarreling. So, I want you to understand that darkness is symbolic of sin and moral failure. And darkness announced the presence of sin at the cross of Christ. And it was personal sin being judged and wrath being poured out for that sin at the cross. As, as the Apostle Paul says in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter number 5, verse number 21. He that knew no sin. He that knew no sin for our sake. Whose sake? Believer's sake. He made him to be sin. That we, who's we? Believers might become the righteousness of God. Wow. Now think about that. Have you ever really thought about the gravity of what is happening on the cross of Christ. Every fib and lie, every murder, every lustful thought, every moment of anger and revenge by all those who would be saved by the vicarious sacrifice of Christ, it was placed on Him. He'd never done it. 
But he was bearing the weight of all of our pride, of all of our hatred, of all of our sexual sin, of all of our addictions, of all of our racism, of all of the ungodliness and unrighteousness of those and only those that would come to him for salvation. He was bearing the weight of that. Darkness descended, came down, and enveloped the cross. Your darkness, my darkness. And he was the light of the world who knew no darkness. Wow. That is a heavy thought to think on. Because dark clouds gathered, there were, secondly, deep cries that were uttered. There were deep cries that were uttered. There was, first of all, in our text, a cry of distress. Verse number 46, we see that as Christ was feeling the weight of God's judgment and the repulsion of the sins of the believing world. In torment, Jesus cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That's Aramaic. Meaning, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now somebody that thinks a little bit would say, well, why did he say it in Aramaic, Scott? You're always telling us that the New Testament is written in Greek. It is. They wrote in Greek in that day, but the common man spoke in Aramaic. As a matter of fact, it makes me feel good to know that Jesus spoke Aramaic because Aramaic was kind of like a country bumpkin dialect of the day. So don't let anybody make you feel bad because of your hickey accent, okay? Aramaic was somewhat like that, all right? And so here we have Christ crying out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Wow. Now listen to me. I'll talk slow. Because I don't want you to leave out of here. And I don't want you to say I said something I didn't say. But I'm going to say some deep things here. And there are going to be some things that we're going to talk about that are heavy. Mysteries. But what we see here, this is the humanity of Jesus crushed under the weight of sin. This is the same humanity that we see sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, remember, our Savior is God, very God, fully God. But in the virgin birth, our God was clothed in humanity. Jesus was also man. He was the God-man. He was, as Paul writes and Paul teaches us, he was the second Adam because the first Adam failed. And the first Adam brought sin and corruption and depravity in the human race. But Christ was sinless. And he was the second Adam who came to do what the first Adam failed at. And that's the perfect human second Adam. He and only he, a perfect man, could be our substitutionary sacrifice. The sacrifice from believing humans. Now when Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, he 
the people around him, they, they began to have a little bit of a dialogue. Now they thought, they thought, wait a minute, is, maybe he's calling on Elijah. Because you see, there was a tradition. It wasn't truth, but there was a tradition. Just like some of you have some traditions that aren't truth. You hear me? Okay. Now there's nothing wrong with tradition. I think we should hold on to godly traditions. But we don't hold on to traditions at the expense of nullifying the word of God who is truth. Follow me? Alright. Now they had a tradition and their tradition was that what they thought is that if a Jew, if there was a righteous Jew and he was in trouble, he would call out and Elijah would come and rescue him. So they're like, well let's see. There were others of them, they were, they were saying, hey, he's calling on Elijah. And then some of the others were like, hmm, you know, let's just wait and see if Elijah really does come and save him. Okay. Well, that, that was, had nothing to do with what Jesus was really doing as he cried out. You see, the weight of sin on a the humanity of he that knew no sin was excruciating. This is the pain of the cross. It's not just the nails and the spikes and the, the, the agony of being placed on a rugged Roman cross. It's not just the spear that pierced his side and burst the periocardial sac around his heart. It's not just the physical if you think the cross is all about the physical, you're missing it. The, listen, it, the physical was hard, but the great horror of the cross was in the fact that the innocent, spotless, sinless Lamb of God bore our sin. You think about the filthiest, most rotten thing you have ever done. Christian, it was placed on Him. He bore our punishment. And in the agony of His humanity, He cries out in fulfillment of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? Wow. So there was a cry of distress. But there was another cry. Verse 50. The text says in verse 50 that, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. <laughs> now, what was that cry? Well, I will tell you this was a cry of deliverance, and I'll tell you why I say it's a cry of deliverance. I say it's a cry of deliverance because of what he cried out. Now, Matthew's narrative doesn't tell us what he said. That's where you gain some insight from the other narratives. And what I believe with all of my heart that he said at that moment was what John tells us he said in John chapter 19 and what Luke tells us he said in Luke chapter 23 and in John chapter 19 we read that there came a point where Jesus cried out it is finished a fancy little word telestai it's finished 
It's done. I've done it. I've fulfilled it. I have accomplished what I came to do. And then he also said, and we know, because John didn't tell us, but Luke told us, he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. And that was a beautiful thing. That was a beautiful thing. It was a cry of deliverance because at that moment in, in real time, atonement was accomplished. Every single sin of the believers, past, present, future, was judged and punished in the body of the perfect Lamb of God. It was done. The work was done. And now the Spirit of Jesus was free from the body of death. Now somebody may say, how can Jesus in a few hours satisfy what I will have to spend eternity to pay for apart from Him. How is that? Well, I'll, I'll tell you how. There's a big difference between you and Jesus. He was innocent. You're not. I'm not. Okay? Innocent man, perfect man, second Adam. He can do it. You and I, in the eternal court of justice, guilty as charged, it's a little different. Now, let me, here's where I, I, I'm talking about, I'm, I'm going to try to talk slow for you, all right? Not because I think you're slow learners, but because I don't want to be misunderstood, okay? So don't, I'm not being demeaning when I say that, okay? I just know I can get to talking real fast sometimes. Now, in his death, in the death of Jesus, Sometimes there is some misunderstanding about the nature of what was taking place. Let me explain it this way. There is a famous hymn of the church. It's called, the title is, And Can It Be? And it contains a line that asks a very powerful question. And you may remember this line in that song. He says, How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me. Well, we don't know exactly what the hymn writer meant by that, but I think I need to be very careful with that. Okay, listen to me. God is life. God did not die. The humanity of Christ died. Jesus, yes, was the eternal God, the second person of the Godhead. But it is incorrect to say God died. God is life and life cannot know death. It is impossible for the source of life to die like a common sinner. The humanity of Jesus died. The second Adam died like the first Adam, except the second Adam was sinless. The late... R.C. Sproul comments on this very issue, and I will quote him. He says, if we say that God died on the cross, and if by that we mean the divine nature perished, we have stepped over the edge into serious heresy. In fact, two such heresies related to this problem arose in the early church. 
Theopassianism and Patripassianism. The first of these, Theopassianism, teaches that God himself suffered death on the cross. Patriopassianism indicates that the Father suffered vicariously through the suffering Son. Both of these heresies were roundly rejected by the early church for the very reason that they categorically deny the very character and nature of God, including his immutability. There is no change in the substantive, in the substantive nature or character of God at any time. So it's like this. God of all eternity became man. Jesus was fully God and he was very God. But here's the mystery. He was also fully human and very human. No, you can't plug that into some equation and figure that out. Quit trying to figure God out. The moment you say, I've got God figured out, is the moment you have just proclaimed yourself to be like the Most High God. You are not like the Most High God, but by His grace, through the blood of Jesus, you can become a son of El Elyon, the Most High God, Yahweh. Now, it's careful. We just have to think about that. I don't think anybody that ever says that because I've made that same statement. You just have to be careful and understanding what is going on. It is important to think rightly where you can think rightly. Okay? Now, what happened when the humanity of Christ experienced that death? Christ the victor. Christ the victor stole the sting of death. And when he stole the sting of death on Calvary, we know from the book of Ephesians and we know from the book of 2 Peter that he descended into the very pit of hell. Now when he descended into hell, because I know you've heard people talk about Jesus went to hell between the cross and and the resurrection. Jesus didn't go to hell to suffer. He suffered his hell already on the cross. Jesus, when he went to hell, read in Peter... He went to preach his victory to the prisoners that were in prison. He went to, listen, he went into the pit of hell and I believe walked right up to the prince of darkness and he took from him the keys of death and hell that he stole or were given to him when Adam fell in the garden. And he said, I've got it. I've won. It is finished and you're defeated. Hallelujah. And then when he got through with that 24-something hour sermon to all the devils bound there in hell, because there were were certain spirits that were locked in prison. It was a part of hell known as Tardis, if you understand anything about the Greek language. And those spirits that had brought upon great corruption in the human family prior to the flood. That's why part of the reason the flood came. They were locked and bound in chains at this point in time. And Jesus went there to tell them, you try Listen, you tried to pervert the human race and corrupt the human race by mating with the daughters of men to pervert the seed of Messiah from coming, the seed of Messiah that was promised in Genesis chapter 3. But you didn't stop it. You didn't hinder it. I'm here. I've fulfilled my purpose. I've accomplished the gospel, glorious gospel. And now I'm able to save every single deceived sinner that repents and comes to me by faith. Hallelujah. I said I wasn't going to talk fast at that moment, didn't I? (laughs) Now, there's a third thing. 
there was a dividing curtain that was torn. We read about it in verse 51. And that was the greatest miracle of miracles. Now, there were a lot of miracles going on that evening. I mean, there was a great earthquake. Rocks split open. There were many saints, not all of them, but there were many saints that were resurrected from the dead. And then when Christ was raised, they went out into the city as well. I mean, can you imagine that? Knock on the door. Hello, mom, it's granddad. He died last year. (laughs) Had to be quite an amazing thing. But as awe-filling as those things were, the greatest miracle of all, the greatest miracle was the temple curtain being torn, the veil of the temple being torn from top to bottom. You see, in Solomon's temple, there was a large curtain that hung between the holy place and the holy of holies. It was a thick curtain. According to the law, only the high priest could go behind that curtain once a year on the Day of Atonement to sprinkle the blood of a lamb over the mercy seat that was above the Ark of the the Covenant rested on top of the ark, and he made atonement for the sins of the people. If he entered into the Holy of Holies, or anyone else entered into the Holy of Holies, it was a pretty, if he entered in at any other time, and if, he, if anyone other than the high priest entered in, it was a bad thing because God had promised his people that he would meet with them there, his perfect presence would fill that place, and it would rest there above the mercy seat. No sin can exist alive in the presence of God. And so it meant certain death. Now, truth be told, by the time of Jesus and the crucifixion, the glory of God had already departed, and the Ark of the Covenant was no longer in their possession. But the curtain of the temple still hung still hung as a reminder of the divide between God and man because of sin. And it, was a, it was a massive curtain. I mean, this wasn't like your raggedy bed sheet with holes in it that you need to go replace. I mean, this thing was thick. This thing was strong. It was said that you could have... Uh, Teams of horses pull in different directions and they, it's thought that they were not capable of ripping this curtain. It was, a, it was a pretty powerful, massive deal. But yet, on this day, on this day, on this day when Christ bore the wrath for our sins. Oh my goodness. On this day, 
The hand of sovereign mercy reached over from the sapphire seal of heaven's gate and tore it in two. It is very careful that the scripture notes that you know that it was torn from the top to the bottom, not from the bottom to the top, because no man could ever remove this divine. But God in sending Christ has done it and he removed it from heaven to us. Hallelujah. That is a glorious thing. And so with that curtain torn in two, that torn curtain announced an end to the Levitical law, there was no more sacrifices to be made. There was a sacrifice once for all. We no longer need the blood of bulls and goats and lambs. We, we can go before the throne of grace with confidence. Wow. That is a powerful truth. The torn curtain was an announcement that whosoever wants to come may come in repentance and faith and drink freely from the living water of Christ. Hallelujah. In closing, I would note at the end of that text, when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus witnessed all these things, the earthquake and what took place, the Bible says they were filled with awe and said, Surely, this was the Son of God. Wow. Well, filled with awe and wonder, I announce to you this morning that surely this Christ was the Son of God. The second person of the Godhead in bodily form. Do you know Him? Do you know Him? Do you know Him? Have you received the gospel of His salvation? I'm not asking you if you have followed an ABC, step one, two, three, made some little human decision thing. I could care less about little religious rituals that make a sinner no more than a Christian than the devil. And God could not only care less, He hates it. My friend, I want to know if you've been born again. You see, sinners troubled by your sinfulness, hear the good news. If you will come by grace through faith, disgusted by your sinfulness, looking to be delivered by Christ, then come, turn to Him, trust in Him and His finished work on the cross, and you will be given the power to become a son of God. A child not born of human will or flesh, but born of God. John chapter 1. That's John's language, not mine. Wow. And saints, I would say to you, don't ever let the story of the cross and the death of Jesus and the resurrection grow cool in your heart. Do not become so passe with it that it doesn't move you. Something's wrong. The more we hear it, the more it should expand our awe in Christ. And so I pray this morning that every saint in this room leaves out of here today filled with more awe than they came in with over Christ Jesus.
Hallelujah. I'm going to ask every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed.